Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. The notion of a city on the hill is a very important part of our continuing epistemological traditions. It's really, really important for us to know the way, go the way and show the way. We also need to be able to see examples of what works so that we know that the climb up the hill will be worth it. Sarah Martin is the principal of Stonefields in New Zealand, and she has built an educational city on a hill with her community of inquiry and practice. It's a rare privilege to be able to talk to an educator who really knows how to know the way, go the way and show the way. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. With their strategic educational development program, they seek to identify and define strategy, structures and operations for a preferred future. They support the educational aspirations of each school community through the development of a high-performance culture. To find out more about how they can help your school, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is Fitzroy treating you on this glorious spring day in Melbourne? Thanks for asking, Adriano. It's, it, it is indeed a beautiful day. We're, we're, we're out of lockdown. Unfortunately, Sarah is not out of lockdown, so but that's all right. Um, look, I, I had a very pleasant conversation with a, uh, a, a street hawker this morning as I was off to get my organic stone ground coffee, you know, who was trying to espouse the virtues of, of different forms of toffee. You're a toffee fan, aren't you, Adriano? Not at all, mate. That would, that's absurd. What an absurd thing to suggest to someone from deep in Melbourne's West. Uh, anyway, enough of this absolute nonsense. Uh, we are recording this in November, but of course, this is live in, in 2022, uh, Series 9 of The Game Changes with the theme around, you know, the science of learning. Uh, Sarah, it's wonderful for us to be with you today. And I'm going to ask you the very first question. It's a question that we ask all of our, our Game Changer guests. Tell us about your story and how you got to where you are today. Well, firstly, I just want to say a sincere thank you for the opportunity. I'm thoroughly enjoying your podcasts. So a little bit about me and the journey. One of four siblings, um, third after two older brothers. So learning to be determined um, was very much about facing cricket balls being hurled down a pitch, hauling engines out of a car, um, and it started from a really young, young age. Now, when I think back and I reflect on my schooling experience, what's most memorable and was most enjoyable was very much all the other learning opportunities. It was participating in the Kapahaka group. It was the, the rock band, 
the school shows, etc. And probably when I vividly remember back to school, the other thing that just haunts me to this day was examinations. I mean, having to regurgitate a whole lot of stuff under those conditions just wasn't certainly the way that I learned and could show. Um, I could have got university entrance in year, um, it would have been the sixth form, yet in year seven and that seventh form, that examination and being so high stakes, I think did real harm and it does real harm to so many people. And when I think back into my teaching um, career, I didn't know I wanted to go into teaching. Um, and I'm just so jolly pleased that I did and embarked on that career and reflect back to a very memorable time, which would have been in a year six class where I had lots of characters and largely they were boys, I have to say. They were the kids that were found after school lighting fires on the buildings and they would draw knives and they were the FU kind of people. And yet they were my biggest teachers. And reflecting back on that particular moment in that class, I was also reading Art Costa's Habits of Mind, and I was thinking, gee, I was blessed to have the upbringing that I had. How might we bottle some of that? So we actually co-created with this um, class the dispositions, if you like, or the qualities that I knew would absolutely draw out the talents that were innate within all of these individuals. And it was probably there that um, this forever journey around actually what learning really does matter for our young people and for their future and how do we equip them to know what to do when they don't know what to do mm-hmm. so with the Stonefields opportunity and founding a school um, that was just the most phenomenal greenfield situation to really think big and be brave and to reconceptualize what learning could be and I have to say it's been a roller coaster ride there's been lots of top of hills and bottoms of um Dales, if you like, Phil, and it's just been an absolute ride of incredible learning and co-creating that. So I think the big thing in my journey that drives me now is working with diverse others who are passionate about collaborating to make stuff better for kids. It's really just as simple as that. Thank you very much for, for sharing the personal aspects of your journey as well as then the professional ones. It's really interesting to listen to you about how those two kind of worlds converge. Can you recall the moment where your personal aspirations in, in, in the space of identifying simple worth in people translated into you wanting to serve a learning community where you were helping young people in particular and the adults that support them also discover their worth? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if I go back a decade ago when we were thinking about the teaching and learning that really mattered for young people, What's very apparent in the vision that we do have, and it's probably important that I outline that um, slightly for you, is that I think you'll see some of the personal story, also what we know around metadata and what really has good impacts for kids, but actually being forward thinking and future orientated around what these young people need to be successful in a world that's fundamentally different to the one I was schooled in. So I think that first sort of idea is We want our kids to be really foundationary literate, to have the literacies that help them to pursue and further learning. We're in a primary school setting. I don't think anyone would say that being able to read and write and access learning isn't an important um, literacy to have. And I think importantly sitting alongside that is that idea I touched on around 
you know, the dispositions, um, the, the know-how to know what to do when you're stuck and you're learning. And that real learning happens from that premise. So how do we provide all opportunity, all kids with those opportunities? And I think it's not about the individual and individuals situated very much in a, in a um, whakawhanaungatanga or a family, in a community, and that being able to be active contributors, but to value diverse perspectives from others um, so in that primary school setting, being able to, um, you know, be a good friend, to be able to build those relationships um, and to be contributors to um, things beyond themselves is really, really important. And I think that sort of third idea was around making meaning is the third vision principle where we want our kids to be great meaning makers of the world in which they reside and to be able to grow just beyond that knowing about something to a deep level of understanding um, so that, that then they're dealing with more and more complex ideas to be able to transfer that. And which sort of comes to the last idea of um, our vision. I think this probably comes back to, you know, the love of pursuing those, those wider learning opportunities. But, you know, a great believer that every single individual has innate talents and strengths. And it's our role to draw those out. It's not about the kids fitting our system. It's about how we, the school, making sure that we fit for every learner. So where are the opportunities for kids to have agency and to take action and to apply that learning and transfer it? So I, th I think you can sort of see that weave coming back to your yeah, question yeah. between the personal and, and what we were trying to establish. There's so much in what you're sharing with with our audience and with Phil and I today. We're gonna we're gonna really explore some of those things. We are we've got we've got some questions for you around the notion of I'm stuck. We've got some questions around learner agency and then kind of some real practical applications of some of the specific thinking skills that you do at Stonefields. But I want to come back to something you just mentioned there, where you referenced the word vision and you were sharing so much of your school's vision in in your response just then. But my understanding is that part of this, this, the Stonefield School vision is the belief that developing each learner holistically is critical to them being created into kind of curious beings and individuals who can think and relate well to others. That's really clear in what you just shared with us. It's underpinned by four principles, building learning capacity, collaborating, making meaning and breaking through. And you touched upon those things just a moment ago uh, as well in your response. What I'm interested in, and I'm sure our listeners are interested in, is what does the lived experience for each student actually look like in practice in reference to those principles? So I think, should we just do a little walkthrough and should I try and visualize yeah. seeing the learners in their learning hubs? So the learning hub structure is you'll have two, usually more often three teachers in a space with multi-year levels. Um, we started out with quite broad year levels. So we'd have sort of three, sometimes four year levels in a hub. And now we're at two year levels. We're a school of 700 right now. And as you'd walk in through the morning, you probably see um, a hub hui. That's a, that's a gathering where waiata um, song would be sung. And there'd be a morning karakia, which is a traditional way of starting the day in a, um, and being really, really true to the Treaty of Waitangi um, in New Zealand. And there you'd see children launching into um, some literacy. So you'd see that in that I part of the building learning capacity, you would see intentional teachers teaching foundation literacies. It would be highly differentiated. Um, it could be based on interest. 
could be based on sometimes extra dose and density for kids who might need that little bit extra. And you'd very much see that literacy woven around the concept learning. And what I mean by concept learning, a good example could be this year, um, conceptually, we'd be learning around diversity as an example. So very much all the literacy materials quite richly integrated. And then you'd, um, depending on the hub, it's not strictly timetabled. Hubs have huge autonomy in how they make decisions in implementing the vision. And you'd walk potentially into another learning hub where you'd see breakthrough underway where it's very much passion-led, strength-based learning and kids could be pursuing anything from just thinking of a few live examples. Um, one young lady was interviewing me around helping the homeless. So she was mm -hmm. gathering a whole lot of items to help um, City Mission in Auckland with the homeless. You've got another person who wants to launch a rocket and because we're concerned about how high her rockets are being launched, um, she's learning then to be able to write up a RAMS, a risk analysis management as part of her breakthrough. So you'd see a wide, wide range just being on a hangout with a group of boys developing a, a PO, which is a, like a totem pole that'll be cultural and it'll be that group of learners legacy that they leave, um, leave behind. So if you like, probably describe it that you'd see some critical to know learning happening. You'd see the, the reading, writing and maths woven with the conceptual learning. And then you'd have critical to learn. Um, and if you like, we see that more as the capabilities, the other social and emotional learning opportunities where you'll see some real social impact occurring um, around these breakthrough initiatives. You'll see everywhere you look what we call our learning process, which sits with our make meaning um, vision principle. And that's a three-phased process that's built on partly Solo's taxonomy of thinking, but a lot of our own research we've done in practice, which is building knowledge, making meaning and applying understanding. And kids would very much be able to tell you where in that learning process they are and what their intentions and plans are to be able to um, apply that understanding or to take further action. Sarah, thank you. That's a wonderful journey through your school. And it's, 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 of course, it's an appropriate way for you, I guess, to describe learner agency because, you know, you tell it through the living out of that agency <laughs> rather than a set of theoretical things. I want, if I can, to ask you a series of questions. Some of them might be short fire questions and some of them maybe uh, one or two might, we might take just a little bit longer. How do you decide which pieces of educational theory you're going to put in practice, you mentioned um, solo just then. There's a lot of educational theory out there. How do you choose what you're going to do? Yeah, from inception, I'll, I'll go back to John Hattie's meta-analysis and work. Um, we know a lot about the particular um, theories and practices that do have positive impact. Um, I was in an interesting forum the other day and people had been asked to talk about the different literacy programs they used and there were a hundred brainstormed. My immediate question is, what evidence have we got of the impact of those various programs? So where I think historically a lot of research has happened, I think where we're at now is absolutely referencing that. We know that agency has the potential 1.44 impact. So, you know, triple an impact of a 0.4 typical year's gain in a year as an example. So uh, providing kids with the opportunities to um, know how they're going, where they're going and what might be next is a, an important theory, if you like, that underpins um, what we're doing. 
a lot of the other emerging ideas, we would like to say that it's like pracademics, that we use a lot of the research and the academics, but we do a lot in practice and we trial and we fail fast and we get to iterate out of the learning, but it's always evidenced. Um, and I think the thing we're most passionate about as an organisation is measuring and showing impact in the areas that we haven't traditionally measured. So Sarah, thank you for that. And that gives us really good insight into how the community of inquiring practice works around um, finding evidence, finding theory, putting it into practice. When I go to schools where the community doesn't work particularly well, what I find is an absence of decision-making around theory. In other words, teachers are given, if you like, a radical autonomy to choose whichever bits they want that suit them, um, that may or may not be informed by evidence. It may or may not be informed by evidence of positive impact on learning outcomes. It might just be uh, an implicit favourite, a preferred method, something which is personal to a teacher's repertoire in and around there. How do you get beyond that type of practice, which is well-intentioned but low in impact, to high impact, high performance learning, and what's the difference in the decision-making process? Because I think the answer has to be there. Somebody has to make a decision that says, we're not doing that and we are doing this. Tell me how that works in your school. Yeah, so two things come to mind as I'm reflecting on what you're um, asking there. One is, if I come back to the learning process as an example, we know that opportunities for kids to make meaning engaged in discussion and discourse has the potential to have huge impact. So our learning process um, has, I mean, the point I'm wanting to make is it's a shared language of learning um, and that it is an underlying pedagogical practice and a process that kids use to be great decision makers, problem solvers, design thinkers, you name it. It's the same thinking language that emerges in those three phases. So we're not the school that's, and I don't want to disregard any other wonderful people out there with wonderful models, but we're not going to do the Jamie McKenzie's keys and the six thinking hats and the this and the that. We have a shared language, a shared model. And when you're a five-year-old in our school, you'll start to learn what those, the literacy of that process is. You'll learn the um, three phases and then you'll start with more and more sophistication, understanding, thinking that sits underneath that. So I think the power of shared language and all contributing and building on that um, and again coming back to it's been built on what we know has positive impact on outcomes. The other little piece is a framework I think has been really, really helpful too and it's quite simple. We call it the TLA, the Teaching, Learning and Assessment Cycle. It's something again that's emerged out of a lot of um, evidence and research is just simply asking what, you know, how do I know these kids need this learning at this time? How am I going to cause that learning? And then how will I know if I've been successful? So it's a, it's a what, how and reflect. And was or wasn't I impactful? If I wasn't impactful, I might need to go back and try the how in a different way and a different approach before I'm cycling back to what the learning is. So that can happen on steroids, second by second, if you think about a clock. And it can be, um, you know, in the in the teacher's head, they're constantly noticing, recognising and responding through to a more considered, what we'd call an inquiry, where it's more like the hour hand. You know, I've got a real problem to solve here. I've got something I really want to improve. I keep getting stuck or these kids are getting stuck. 
how am I more considered and deliberate and slow in going through that um, what, how, and reflect that TLA? What I'm hearing from that is a very conscious decision on the part of the school, which is both collaborative, but I suspect lurking behind there is a very modest leader who's framed in her mind that we need to pick and stick with the theories that we think have impact. We need to go deep with it. We need to have a shared language with limitations hanging around that says, well, this, this is the language we use in this school, not that language or that language. Those languages might be fine, but in our school, this is the way we do things. So we've gone from vision to intention to actions to culture by creating that notion of the way we do things here. Mm. Julia Aitken's wonderful model was yes. fine, I know, but, you know, that why yeah. being very clear on the vision purpose, yes. the conditions, I'd say, sort of the cultural and making sure there's congruence through to the what and the practice. That's it. Yes, you're, an, you're, you're, you're another person who's learned at the feet of Julia Atkins, probably the most influential educational thinker um, ever oh, for she me. She is phenomenal. She critiqued our vision and was yeah. an absolute thought leader. Yeah, of course, of course. Here's where I want to go to, and we can talk about being stuck and we can talk about the learning pit and, you know, all of those sorts of things. I want to talk about the culture of a school that takes a teacher who doesn't have this shared approach and helps them to develop the way we do things here at Stonefields. How do you permission teachers to develop that shared, collaborative, contributive agency that you're talking about in that way? How do you bring teachers in from the outside in and enculturate them so that they're working towards your science of learning? Yeah, it's so multi-layered, but I think we interview for learners. That is the first critical point, that it's not about appointing people who know a whole lot of stuff, and that's not that knowing stuff's not important. It's what we do with what we know that matters more and how we continue to learn. So the learning in our place and the culture is learning never stops. Um, so I think that's first and foremost important. And I think you know, every year, because we learn, it's a learning organisation, we're a system that learns, the induction and onboarding has evolved and changed. Yes, we have a, a site that's curated um, with a whole lot of videos and how you use the learning process and the learner qualities and the learning pit, et cetera. And people can consume as much of that before they even come on board. Um, so there's lots of little how-to videos and curated material that's really, really useful and people find it helpful because they can go back and they can touch base when they need things just in the moment and in time. We have a really um, rigorous induction program. So any new to Stonefields, people, whether you're new to the teaching profession or not, are inducted and around our vision and the signature practices that cause that to be realised in practice. And then I think coming back to this um, collaborative culture, we're very much um, all in it together. If I think school-wide around the professional learning, again, yes, we have whole staff professional learning but again it's quite differentiated and it's shared, shared and led by multiple people within the organization we have mentoring and coaching programs observations that are ongoing and happen and again it's about the adult the teacher having the agency it's not done to them so what feedback are you seeking what feedback are you wanting to grow and develop your practice so who's going to be best to provide that for you and go forth um, and we really get out of the way because we want to see people pushing boundaries, taking risks. It's really interesting when 
learning communities allow everyone in that community to step into that space of permission that you've just shared with our audience. And that requires a lot of things to happen before we get to that point. It requires us to develop really good structures around inclusion safety, learner safety, you know, contributor safety, challenger safety, and so on. I mean, that's the whole psychological safety piece in one. I'm interested in, in you sharing with our audience how Stonefields then ensures this kind of social, open, engaging, and real context that you keep describing. How do you ensure that that is part of the high-performance culture that you have developed in your school? Yeah, so I'd say there's two pieces in there, possibly, Andriano. And if I just touch on that sort of high-functioning, we call them synergetic teams. Um, we can correlate that the teams that are the most synergetic have the greatest impact on outcomes for kids. And we, we launched into a huge inquiry. We wanted to untangle and to surface almost the intangibles. And it came again into a conceptualizing a model where these teams had the systems to make that team work. They had great communication, et cetera. They had the social sensitivities. They could empathize. They had that subculture, the norms that helped them function really well. They could speak up. They talked about you know, what our communication preferences are, as an example. They then, once those sort of the systems and the, um, the norms are in place, can get on and do their work really, really well. I think the highest functioning teams then are very strength-based and they're leveraging what one another is and isn't and they're working to strengths. Um, and that's where we see huge, you know, alignment with doing whatever needs to be done to make stuff better for, for kids and pushing some boundaries and being really, really innovative in that space. I think one capability that helps take teams to the next level, and it's something we, again, don't leave to chance and are quite intentional about, but is that sense-making mm -hmm. ability? You know, when you and I hold different perspectives to one another, it's about being deeply curious about that and leaning in because through that dissonance or that rub is, a, is an opportunity for further learning. Um, I was in a forum this morning and I did giggle at the team. I said, gee, the um, psychological safety is high in this um, team because... One just cuts in and says, well, I don't, um, I don't agree with that at all and shared their perspective. The conversation gets richer, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the second part of your question was around how do teams work together to make the learning authentic and real, was that? Well, I mean, it is ultimately around how you continue to create an environment and a culture that ensures that engagement might be the base level, but how do we make it real? Yeah, we in culture, I don't think you can just leave to chance. I know in establishing it, we had mindsets and values and almost mantras that helped the way we did things around here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the really important ones was um, we go, not ego, and that we actively collaborate. You know, there was no my and I in our school. And we had to call one another out in that sense. Yeah. You know, listen sincerely, value the voices. Student voice is such a huge part in what we do. So I think those mantras helped in the earlier years in sort of the last, it's only been the last three years probably, where we did a whole big revaluing um, of our organisation. And we've come up with three values, which is um, being my best self, bringing our best together and breaking ground. And again, constantly talking about, well, how does that show up? What are the behaviours and the actions we take, both for the learners, our community and the staff? as a whole. I think there's three phases of culture. There's establishing it, there's yes. maintaining it and checking in on it. 
So having just, again, surveyed our staff, we know that our organisation, um, the organisational culture is really healthy because the evidence is um, telling us that there's been years where it hasn't been mm -hmm. and how we've used that data to dig in and say, well, hey, are we okay with this? What do we need to do differently? How are we going to shift to um, realise that organisational culture that we all ultimately long to belong to? I was going to ask you a question now around um, how schools cultivate the notion of thriving in young people, but I feel that you kind of really articulated that uh, just beautifully then around this notion of cultivating culture and we go, not ego. So I'm interested in shifting this a little bit and focusing on Sarah Martin as the leader and how Sarah Martin turns up and what do you do on a regular basis to sustain your sense-making and to sustain your drive for basically changing the game of school? It's such a great question. And I have to say, I don't love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you just, no day's the same. I've never woken up and thought, oh, off we go to school. It's the most fulfilling privilege I think anybody could have to be a part of a school and a school community and part of a team that heart is totally in the right place and wanting to um, do best by our, our young people and that we really believe in our young people. So I think, how do I show up? Absolute optimism and positivity and nothing's a problem. I think I need to, and I do, I'm a lead learner. So I role model what I'm learning about, what I'm curious about, what I don't know about, what makes me vulnerable. Um, things that keep me awake at night and worry. I think that real openness and I think if anybody comes with a perspective or a concern, I'm always grateful and thank, thankful for that. So I'm always engaging with everybody and, um, and as a learner. So I think that that key learner piece. And I think possibly when I think I get out a, a little bit out of whack myself, um, I know the thing that fills or puts the marrow back in my bones is learning and having a challenge and grappling with something. So um, I think that's absolutely, absolutely critical. I'm interested, again, in just shifting, shifting the conversation slightly as I'm sitting here and, 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 and listening to you and uh, Adriano talk about your own self-care as a leader and, and, and talk about the way in which you promote thriving within your school. I can see the layers of deep research just appearing in every conversation that you have and taking something that probably started life in a research place and then it ended up in some journal article somewhere, but now it's, it's living in the lives of uh, your community. There's something I think that Kiwi schools do better than anywhere else in the world. I mean, there's lots of things that Kiwi schools do really, really well, and I, I, I love my time working with Kiwi schools. But one thing that you do is that you have, well, you have a deep appreciation of fun out, you know, it's of, of, of that, the involvement of the broader family unit within school. I guess there are two things about it that really strike me. First of all, you're serious about involving family in school. And secondly, your understanding of that is framed by a First Nations piece. So that didn't start its life in a research space and then in a journal article. That started life in Maori communities mm -hmm. and then was brought in. 
So in other words, you're privileging knowledge that's coming from different sources, but it's still evidence-based and you're still making it work. Talk to me about how you and the community at, at Stonefield um, involve um, Funnel and, and how that works. And for any listeners out there, please excuse my horrible Australian vowels and what I've just done to marry. Um, it's it's a lifetime problem. Beautiful concept of whānau, whakawhanaungatanga. Um, so in a, in a te old Māori world view, you don't separate the child from the family. And that really aligns with the philosophy of our school and, um, you know, that, that collaboration vision principle in particular. Um, our parents have been key partners in designing our local curriculum and involving themselves in the learning that happens um, right from inception. So I'm just another little piece of research and an inquiry that's quite a collaborative inquiry happening at the moment. It's part of our strategic direction is again, engaged families, kids do well in our school. So what are we doing to ensure that every single family whānau member is engaged in our school? So um, we've established what's called Te Pātaka Ako, which is like a community hub. And the meaning behind that word is a reciprocity of learning with the school and with parents, and it's two-way. Two so there's about three strands that operate um, out of Te Pātaka Ako at the moment. Um, one is very much around how might I support um, my child at home, and there's lots of practical things that can happen there. So that is the school offering out, if you like, and then the offering into the school is expertise and parents, et cetera, running um, opportunities for the wider community to be able to engage, engage in. We built a kotahi whānau, which is, again, about standing as one with whānau um, tool, and we've been tracking... Um, parent engagement and we were interested in surfacing any unconscious bias we might have with different ethnic groups etc and we actually are looking at the level of um, relationship it's like a self-perception type of a thing and that's given us huge insight around where we need to put more effort so when we're looking at our data in the last number of years we've been putting huge amount of effort in with our Māori whānau we have the strongest relationships with that ethnicity which we're really heartened by because that's where the effort has gone. So part of the engagement with whānau is um, we have hui um, frequently and other just activities, to be fair, that draw everybody together that helps to build that relationship and that partnership. Help us, Sarah, just help us understand hui. So a hui is um, the Māori word for a, a gathering, a meeting. Sorry, we do quite bilingually sometimes just. Oh, and that's, that's, that's a big, big push in New Zealand, which is really important. Indeed. So, and, and in New Zealand, you would talk about being multicultural and in, in, in a in a, or bicultural in a, in a multicultural, yeah. bicultural in a multicultural setting. Can I, can I it, just stretch this just a little bit further? So not, not only are you operating in a context where you're engaging seriously with First Nations knowledge systems, and history and culture and extracting from that stuff which works for everybody and making it work within a learning community. You're also operating within the context of a nation who very soon, you know, 50% of its capital city won't have been born in New Zealand. So mm -hmm. you've got an extraordinary, if you like, reaching back into the past and into the present 
within Maori culture, but also you've got the reaching into the future and the rest of the world. How does it? How does all that work? How do you bring together um, so many different cultures into the life of one school? Well, it comes back to our responsibility through the treaty and what was signed. Um, and our partnership and our responsibility first around um, biculturalism. And just to put in context, we're 30 plus different cultures in our school and blessed because of it. 40% of them speak a language other than English at home, the lucky things. Um, And it's something we survey our wider community on. Probably one of the top satisfaction levels in our community is around um, diversity and how it's valued. And the other is the extent to which we weave te reo and tikanga, which is protocols and things Māori, into our curriculum, which is part of our curriculum, a very important part of our curriculum. So the feedback we're getting is it's really well embraced in our community, but it's happened, it happens on so many layers and we've got a long way to go um, to be truly embracing the full intent of, um, you know, the principles that are within that um, te tiriti or waitangi. Last in the trilogy of questions before I hand over to Adriano to talk about exams, because I know he's just dying <laughs> to talk about exams. That's never going to happen. And, and how you depower them in schools. I'm interested in the role of school and the purpose of school under everything that you've built. Why does Steinfields exist? Why does Stonefield School exist? It exists to ensure that our young people can be the best versions of themselves, to be deeply connected, networked with their peers and their community, to be great meaning makers and thinkers because we want them to ultimately be our problem solvers, etc. And it's really around a purpose and fulfillment and sense of happiness and that purpose and learning in life. And that we're setting them up, we're a link in the chain. We bring them from early childhood. So we're the second link in that chain, if you like, into secondary and and beyond. So we really are ultimately aiming, you know, you've used the word thriving today, flourishing. It's that real purposeful um, contributors that go on and actually have an impact and make a difference in the world, can contribute. Sarah. I'm going to ask you two very quick questions. One relates to how can we depower the value of exams in schools? And my final question to you, which I'm going to share with you now to contemplate, is what's something that you've tried in your work that you would never do again? So in New Zealand, there's lots of inroads in that space. NCEA is built on, um, so in a secondary system, if you like, is built on a mixture of different internal assessments and credits, et cetera, that work towards sometimes there's an exam component to it. You know, in a primary school setting, we have these rich records of learning. Kids are curators of their own learning and progress um, and can articulate through their self-reflections Um, through other analytics that we can gather and self-perception surveys around things like agency or their ability to perspective take and collaborate, some very rich records of how they're progressing against um, progressions. And, you know, a child's learning journey is their pathway. I think um, that's why we're very progression-based as a school. It's not age and stage, it's... um, you know, where are you, where do you need to be and what might next um, look like? So I'll just give you a couple of examples of some more sort of tangible tools. 
you know, feedback to teacher and going back to that TLA idea, um, the what, how and reflect, is teachers ask kids just to draw these two little sliders quickly in a digital tool. Um, and they're really asked is, were they challenged in the learning, going back to those stuck notions? Um, and how much did they love or didn't like the learning? Now that plots every child, whether there's eight kids in that group or there was you know, more kids doing that, that gives immediate feedback to the teacher around whether that learning did or didn't hit the mark. So I think there's, there's teacher-facing information that helps to inform their decision-making and what they do differently. And there's also this notion where we're gifting back all the data that we're collecting on children so that that can inform how they're going, where they're going, and what um, next could be. So our kids are incredibly competent and capable curators of their own, um, call it a portfolio, if you like. They add evidence daily as evidence that they have achieved um, particular aspects of progressions in both that critical to learn and the critical to know. So it's, it's a weave of both the soft and the not-so-soft learning. And... That final question from me before I hand it over to Phil to wrap it up. What's something that you have tried in your work that you wouldn't do again? Look, I, I think if there's one big monumental wouldn't do, I think it's more, that's just how we roll daily as far as, you know, how are we going? Where are we going? Um, what evidence have we got to suggest that this was or wasn't a good idea? Um, and that collaboratively we do we're constantly evaluating so sorry on, on the spot I can't think of a big what wouldn't I do again but I have to say being a learner there's things you wouldn't do and you're constantly reflecting and evolving yeah I think I think what you're sharing with our audience is that uh, as a leader and, and as a learner you're, you're open to this notion of continuous learning and unlearning and that's just part of your cycle so it, it's less about what you wouldn't do again it's more about what the next iteration of that was to continue to evolve, to, to fit the context of any given time. And uh, I think that's so much of the depth of what you've shared with us today. Uh, there's, there's this strong thread of cultural identity uh, and embracing diversity as a strength. There's a strong thread that runs through your vision around empowering each young person to step into their curiosity and agency and the adults who support them there's a powerful construct around the social exchange that occurs within our learning communities and the character apprenticeship that's formed between teachers and students and the value that that brings. And I love how you've integrated families. I mean, they're the primary educators of their children. Why, why, why do we have such an aversion of including them on a more regular basis in, in, in the construct of the ecosystem of a, of a new tomorrow? So from my point of view, I just want to say huge thank you for what you've shared with us today. And I'm going to hand it over to my esteemed colleague, young Phil, to wrap it up. Yeah, young Phil, indeed. Look, Sarah, um, thank you. Um, as, as I've been sitting here and reflecting on uh, your contributions to our profession in your own country and internationally and the way in which you've been accounting for them today to our impertinent and silly questions. Um, it seems to me that if we're going to get the character of our students right, we've got to get the character of our school right. And, and you know, with, with our research around understanding the notion of character, and there's three essential things that sit in it, essential belonging. You build that every day. The fulfilment of potential, and that's 
So you do that in such clear, simple ways. And you, you pick the things that are going to work and you say, this leads to that and we're going to do this. There's nothing that you've revealed to us in terms of the language and terminology that's in any way complicated. It's, it's language that all can use. And then finally, the doing of good and right. There's an intensely moral character to what you and, and your community at Stonefield are doing because it, it, you dignify the worth and contribution and value of all in your care, uh, young and old. I love that piece that you gave just at the end about, you know, where do the moral rights of for assessment data belong? Well, with the learner, mm. not with us, not with the adults. It's with the learner. It's, it's their data. It's their growth. This civic character of belonging, this performance character of the fulfilment of potential, this moral character of doing what is good and right, that's what I'm seeing. Everything put together in practice in your school. Bravo, bravo for what you're doing and what you're teaching us. Um, maybe when I grow up, I can come and teach at your school, please. Thank you very much. But I think, I think the big pursuit is our system for a long time has served a wedge of the population that's never served everyone. And our yep. real work is to serve those it hasn't yet. Um, mm. So in a real, you know, I'm really driven by equitable outcomes um, for those the system hasn't served yet. And there's that moral piece again. Uh, Sarah Martin, thank you very much for being on Game Changers today. We wish you well, and I can't wait to come and visit you when I'm over, over the ditch when our Prime Ministers allow us to do that. Thank you. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.